Please take your Bible, if you would, and open to the book of Amos. We'll be reading beginning in chapter 6. Book of Amos, chapter 6, and reading a few verses into chapter 7. It's at about the uh, two-third point in your Bible. If you open your Bible, if you come to Matthew, go back about 30 pages, and you'll find Amos just about there. Amos, chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable man of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. And if ten men remain in one house, they shall die. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no. And he shall say, silence, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carnaim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Lebohamath to the brook of the Arabah. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. When they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said, Oh Lord God, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, said the Lord. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep and was eating up the land. Then I said, O Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. 
Then the Lord said, Behold, I am setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel, and I will never again pass them by. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do you have uh, one of those smoke detectors at home? I hope you do. Uh, Are your batteries fresh? I hope they are. Uh, I recall when uh, those carbon monoxide detectors came out. That was kind of new tech. And I thought that was a waste of time. But my wife disagreed with me. And she bought one and installed one. And I was particularly thankful for that when I got a call from her saying the fire department's on the way. The carbon monoxide detector has gone off. And sure enough, there had been a blockage in our furnace chimney. And so carbon monoxide was the filling the house. And Um, nobody smells it and nobody sees it. It is known as the silent killer because you inhale enough of it and it will poison you and you will die. The silent killer. If you're not careful with carbon monoxide, you will sleep your way from this life into the next. There is a silent killer in the spiritual realm as well. Something so poisonous that if you breathe it in long enough, it will lead you straight to hell. And yet something so invisible, it can be hidden behind all kinds of beautiful words and hypocritical actions. And that spiritual silent killer is pride. Amos has roared words of judgment against Israel as a nation. But today we're going to see how he aims his words toward a particular group within the nation. And he is thinking here in particular of the leaders, the rulers of the nation. And God says that at the root of all of their sins, all of their mistreatment of the weak, all of their oppression of the marginalized, at the root of that is the silent killer, pride. So let me show you what I mean. Number one, pride will lead to a self-indulgence that harms the people you should be caring about the most. It's true in your marriage, it's true in your family, and it's true in a nation. So Amos begins this part of his prophecy by addressing the rulers of Israel. He says in verse 1, Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria. The notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. So notable men are rulers, leaders, the big kahunas, and other, they're they're the movers and the shakers, the power brokers, the, the people in charge. The ones, what Amos says here at the end of the verse, to whom the house of Israel comes. So these are the people that everybody else is looking for answers from. That's who Amos is 
speaking to now. And what he says to them is, is a little bit tricky. Most scholars believe that verse 2 is not Amos saying these words to the rulers. Rather, it's Amos quoting back to the rulers what they have been saying. There's a couple of reasons for that. One of those reasons is a pronoun. You can ask me about it later in the sermon Q&A if you like. Uh, but I'm reading verse 2 here as Amos quoting back to the leaders what these leaders said to their citizens, the house of Israel, when the house of Israel came to them looking for hope, looking for direction. So this is what the leaders say back to the people of Israel. Verse 2, pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Now, these three cities are supposedly great and powerful cities. They're foreign cities. And here comes the pronoun thing. Are you, which is actually they, are they better than these kingdoms? So the reason it's translated you is because there's some complexities in the Hebrew language, but, but that pronoun is actually a they. Are they better than these kingdoms? So it seems like what's happening here is the people come to their rulers and they say, you know, what about us? Are we going to be okay? And they say, look at that nation, this nation, and that nation. Are they better than these kingdoms, Israel? Is their territory greater than your territory? Is, is, is their territory greater than Israel? So these leaders are pointing to other so-called great cities in the area and they're saying, are they any better than us? No, of course not. Today we speak about global cities, uh, London, Tokyo, New York. Actually, Toronto is often in a list of top 10 global cities. Montreal is not. And I can imagine the, the mayor of, of Montreal looking to his people when they come to him and saying, oh, no, aren't we important, aren't we something? And, and maybe he says to them, look, you think Toronto is so great and powerful? It's, just the tr it's Toronto. Are they any better than us? Are their neighborhoods better than our neighborhoods? Are their businesses better than our businesses? Of course not. We're just as good and powerful as that city. And so, so it is by comparing themselves to other seemingly great cities that the leaders of Israel are telling the house of Israel, we're going to be fine. To which Amos answers, verse 3, this is Amos again, O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Not a question mark, but a period. Punctuation isn't in the original. It's all supplied by English translators. It's a statement. O you who put far away the day of disaster, bring near the seat of violence. Amos looks at their lame reasoning. He looks at these fat cat leaders and he says, like, really, that's, that's, your, that's your hope? You point to other cities and say, we're probably better than them. We're, we're going to be fine? Are you not listening to what I've been prophesying, that God sees your oppressive and your exploitive governing? Seat here, uh, that bring near the seat of violence. Uh, seat refers to the, the place of government. Think of a throne. And so it's, the, it's, a, it's a metaphor, a picture of power, throne, the, the authority of their governance. God sees your seat of violence. That word violence all through Amos' prophecy refers to the oppression of the poor and the mistreatment of the marginalized. 
God sees that. Oh, you who put far away, you who just say, oh, that day of disaster, that day of judgment from God is never going to come. And bring near your governance of violence against the most weak in your own society. God sees it. He also sees inside your house. Verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. I think you get the general idea of what Amos is getting at here, but it's probably worse than you think. I mean, obviously, he's pointing out their self-indulgence and their laziness. But what are the specifics? I mean, at one level, when I read verses 4 to 6, I think that lifestyle doesn't sound too far removed from most of us. So let's think about what life was like for the typical Israelite in this day and in this culture. You would sleep on the ground, usually on a mat, if you're lucky, a mat, if not just the ground. You would eat meat probably three times a year at certain feasts where you would take one of your flock and sacrifice of it and part of it would come back to you and that's when you would eat meat. Sorry, no keg in, 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 in Israel. If you had wine, it was from your own vineyard, so you may not have any. Basically, you lived off the land. It was subsistence farming, uh, hand to mouth, so no harvest, no eat. Now, how far removed is that existence of the common Israelite from the fat cat rulers of the land? They've got beds. Look at verse 4. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches. Not just beds, but beds inlaid with fabulously expensive ivory from the tusks of elephants. And not just ivory beds, but beds upon which they loaf and nap. The word here, stretch themselves out, means kind of flop over the edges of. They got beds, they have meat, verse 4, they eat lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall, not just meat, but lambs that have been bred for eating. That's insane to the shepherd Amos. Remember Amos, keeper of a flock? Amos knew that you needed lambs to grow into sheep, to provide wool, clothing, and all that kind of stuff. And not just veal and lamb chops for these, in, in the sense of just for religious meals. These, the, the fat cats are eating this stuff all the time. In other words, he's pointing out their opulent kind of self-indulgence. They fiddle away on garage band, verse 5, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music. David created instruments to be used in the worship of God, but these guys are just writing songs to while away the hours, consulting with the flowers, conversing with the rain. I mean, it was pointless. Fill the air with pointless songs. They get drunk, verse 6, who drink wine in bowls. There's a little bit of fogginess about what that means, but typically you drink wine out of a cup, and to be drinking it out of a bowl seems to indicate quantity. And so these fat cats are getting plastered just to be experiencing another day. And not only that, they, can, they conspicuously consume, verse 6 again, they anoint themselves with the finest oils. Now, oil is a standard part of life in the ancient Near Eastern world. You need it for skin care, deodorant, frankly, and uh, you, you bake with it. Everybody needs oil. But they don't just need oil. 
They need the finest of oil. Quite literally, the first of oils. Top of the line. You know, the most expensive perfume today uh, is, it'll cost you for a bottle of this perfume $1.3 million. Tiny little bottle of perfume. There's only one bottle. It is called, I, I want to call it schmuck, it's shemach. I just think that, I think schmuck would be a great name for a perfume, but shemach. Bottled in Dubai, there's only one bottle. Actually, the, the bottle itself is, is covered in diamonds, and when you open the encasement, it automatically sprays you. I don't think anything smells worth $1.3 million. <laughs> but it's this kind of conspicuous consumption that defines the rulers of Israel. They have to have the first of the oils. An expedition, the Harvard expedition it was called, 1908 to 1910, uh, professors from Harvard went into Samaria, did a, some archaeological digs. You know what they found? They found you know, parts of pots and, and ivory artworks, all of which depicted all of this. People drinking from bowls, not cups. People with great and lavish wealth. And so Amos is, is looking at these rulers, he's dead-eyeing them, and he says, you know what, this is what you live for. This is what you're consumed with. This is what your whole life is focused on. This is your heart's delight. Stuff, food, drink, gluttony, opulence. But, he says, you are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. And here's the rub. You're worried about your veal supply and whether or not you can get a bottle of perfume for that cow of Bashan back home, but you don't care one lick for the people of God nor the things of God. If you live in this country, you live in Canada. Sometimes we call Canada the Great White North. Two different names, same country. But that second name tells you some things about the country. It's cold. It's north. And it's snowy. And Amos chooses to refer here to Israel as Joseph. Why? Why does he call Israel Joseph? Well, what happened to young Joseph? He was thrown into a pit while his brothers feasted. Amos is saying, while well, you fat cats drink and dine, the people of Joseph suffer. That's the primary evidence he's been putting forth between, before these leaders all the way along. Joseph, the nation of Israel, is ruined. It's in the pit, and you don't care. Why not? Why would they? How did these fat cat rulers get rich and powerful and all that stuff anyway? Well, we've already been told back in chapter 3, verse 10, they treasured theft and violence against the vulnerable. Chapter 3, verse 9, they oppressed the weak and the marginalized. Chapter 4, verse 11, you squeeze the poor and crush the needy. Chapter 5, verse 7, they poisoned justice to, you know, 
grease the courts to work in their favor, and they treat righteousness, the doing of what is right, like it were trash. And Amos had said to them, your, your primary objective as people of God is to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. But the only things rolling down and flowing through the streets of Israel were corruption, abuse, injustice, and the oppression of orphans and widows. And what does the Lord say to this? Verse 7. Therefore they, the rulers, shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry, the things he had described there, verse 6 and down, that revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. In other words, the party is over. The leaders who cried back in verse 1, we are the first of the nations. The leaders who anointed themselves with the first of the oil, verse 6, will now be led away, verse 7, the first into exile. The debauchery of the loungers gets turned into the displacement of the lost. Amos looks at them and he says, what good is all that money and power now, O lazy man? Now remember something. God had already sent on Israel famine, drought, crop failure, pandemics. And what does he say back in chapter 4? I sent this, yet you did not return to me. I sent this, yet you did not return to me. I sent this, yet you did not return to me. I sent this, yet you did not return to me. Which means... The suffering of the poor and the weak was even worse than I've already described. These rulers are like wealthy autocrats barking orders over Zoom from their entitled, secluded little mansions and expecting the poor to give up their lambs to the big house and scrounge around for whatever crumbs they can find to survive off. The conditions of the poor worsen while the wealthy prosper off the backs of the poor. And that is injustice. It is evil. The rich get richer, the poor get poorer, but God sees it all. No wonder these words are so often on the mouths of God's people. How long, O Lord? How long? How long will the evil man be exalted over me? How long will you look on while the wicked destroy? How long will the wicked scoff and revile your name? How long until justice comes? How long, O Lord? How long? Those are the questions that plague the sufferers among God's people. But what is the warning that is presented to the rich and powerful rulers among God's people? May I modernize verses 4 to 6 for you? We're not some great leaders of a theocracy, but we do live in the West. And We exist in positions of wealth and influence. We may not feel rich in comparison to the people who live next door to us, but in comparison to the rest of the world, you're doing pretty good, friend. 
Woe to those who lounge about in their pajamas all day, who'd stretch themselves out on their sofas, who order Uber Eats and binge watch Netflix series every afternoon, who spend hours creating Spotify playlists that nobody's going to listen to, who down a bottle of wine every night, who run up their credit card bills with ridiculous toys and do not grieve over the neglect of the struggling among Christ's people. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your Lord. Micah 6, 8. But if pride seeps into your life, you will sell your soul to self-indulgence built on the backs of the weak and the poor. And God hates that. He hates it. Brother, sister, have you ever considered that the greatest threat to your spiritual life may be material prosperity? political peace. The silent killer pride works very, very well through these things. Let me take you to my second observation, which is this. Pride will lead you to self-reliance that lands you in hell forever. So God has something to say to these fat cat rulers, all their sinful actions. Verse eight, the Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. <laughs> so here's another way to, to get this introductory statement across to you. Adonai, who is Yahweh, has sworn against his own neck, literally against his own neck, de- declares Yahweh the God of heavenly armies. That's quite an introductory statement. <laughs> Adonai, who is Yahweh, has sworn against his own neck, declares Yahweh the God of heavenly armies. I abhor the pride of Jacob and hate his strongholds, the things he trusts in in spite of me. I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. That word abhor, what does it mean? It means to loathe something, to hate it, to detest it, to find that thing repulsive. What does God find repulsive? Your pride. It's not new news. Proverbs 8.13, pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate, says the Lord. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. And destruction is right around the corner for Israel. No matter how prosperous and how carefree they may feel right now, doom is on the horizon for those who are living in denial. Their their self-indulgence and gluttony and extravagant laziness are about to just be torn to shreds. And here's here's a picture of what life is going to look like very soon. You see it in verses 9 and 10. Remember, Amos told us right from the beginning about this coming earthquake. And there's all all kinds of archaeological evidence that demonstrates an earthquake did come right around this time. What happens after a massive earthquake? 
clean up. The days of Amos, there are no undertakers, there's no funeral homes, so if one of your relatives dies, it's up to you to go find the body and bury it. And it seems like that's what he's talking about here. It's it's a bit of a strange little interlude, but look at verse 9. If ten men remain in one house, they shall die. I mean, that's pretty simple. And when one's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, so presumably one of the ten, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house. This him seems to be somebody else, maybe a servant or a friend. And shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, a house that's probably just rubble, is there still anyone with you? He shall say, no. And he, the first man, shall say, shh. We must not mention the name of the Lord. Okay, a little bit weird. What's going on? This is what I think is going on. A man hears that his extended family has been killed in the divine judgment earthquake predicted by Amos. And so he takes one of his servants or a friend with him and he goes to that destroyed city to collect the bodies and prepare them for burial. And while he is there, He finds the ten, and then he calls into the rubble where his servant is searching. Is there still anyone with you? Are there any more bodies? And that servant answers, no, to which the man quickly says, hush, don't say the name of Yahweh. Whatever you do, let's get the bodies and let's get out of here. But whatever you do, don't say Yahweh. That might have been respect, but the way Amos is going, I think he's reflecting superstition. That man didn't even want to say the name of God out loud out of fear that while he was there, another earthquake was going to come and he would be killed too. Look at verse 11. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments, and the little house into bits. Bits and fragments, bits and pieces. That's what earthquakes leave behind of clay huts and stone buildings. And that day is sure to come. Amos has been telling us that. And Amos, when, when, he, when, he, when he thinks about all of this, he's absolutely baffled at Israel's lack of repentance. So verse 12, do horses run on rocks? Now, if you don't know anything about horses, that may, the answer is no. You don't run a horse across a rocky field because it'll break its leg and you're out of horse. Does one plow there with oxen? If you see the little ESV footnote, it says sea, like S-E-A, the ocean, sea. And that's probably the, a, a better idea of what Amos is saying here. Does, does somebody plow the sea with an ox? In other words, he, he's saying, look, Do you plow the ocean with an ox? Do you run your horse across a rocky field? Of course not. That's ridiculous. Everybody knows that's ridiculous. And so it is ridiculous to stay on this same path of injustice and unrighteousness. Look at what he says. You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into wormwood. That's the heart of the issue. Again and again and again, Amos keeps returning to this. You are nothing like your God. You're doing the very things that God forbids. You're acting exactly opposite to the character of God. Instead of being just and righteous in all of your dealings, you act unjustly and unrighteously. You're going the wrong way. 
Do you live in Toronto or Toronto? You can always tell people new to the city. I am really enjoying Toronto. <laughs> What's that? No, we're from here. We're like, yeah, I live in Toronto. Two different ways of saying the same word. Amos does something like that here. There's a place called Lodabar, and it's like he just tweaks it a little bit from Toronto to Toronto and says, let me tell you about Lodabar. Lodabar, Lodabar, pretty close. Why does he do that? Because Lodabar means the nothing. So Amos looks at Israel's rulers He says, you who rejoice in the nothing. It's a play on words. You boast in nothing, city. You leaders who say, have we not by our own strength captured Karnaim for ourselves? Karnaim means double-horned. A horn, especially in the prophets, is always symbolic of power. And so there was this little town called Double-Horned. It's kind of a town with short man's disease, you know, like, we're double horned. And everybody kind of looks at it and goes, no, you're not. And Amos looks where Israel's putting all her confidence and says, oh, wow, you think you're something because you conquered a place called nothing and another place called pitiful. Congratulations. Want to know what's going to happen to you, you so-called great and and powerful people who can conquer a city called nothing and another city called pitiful? Verse 14, behold, I will rise up, raise up against you a nation, O house of Israel, declares Yahweh, the God of hosts, and they shall oppress you from Labo Hamath to the brook of Arabah. In, In other words, from the top of the nation to the bottom. Same words that that when God promised Solomon his kingdom, he said, your kingdom will extend from here to here. And Amos knows that exactly. And he says, you know what? I'm going to bring judgment from here to here. And then he switches gears and he gives three quick visions. Visions that confirm everything he just said. The first one, the locust plague. This is what the Lord Yahweh showed me. Behold, he was forming locusts when the latter growth was just beginning to sprout. And behold, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So you got a field, but you got to give the first harvest to the king. And now you're waiting for the other stuff to come up that you're going to live off of. And that's when the locusts are forming to come. In other words, you're going to lose food. You're going to die this winter. And when they had finished eating the grass of the land, I said... O Lord Yahweh, please forgive. How can Jacob stand? He is so small. The Lord relented concerning this. It shall not be, says the Lord. That's good. Amos intercedes for Israel. God relents from sending the locusts. Then comes another vision, verse four. This is what the Lord God showed me. Behold, the Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire and it devoured the great deep. The great deep is an allusion to the ocean. Fire from heaven devours the ocean and is eating up the land. And then I said, oh, Lord God, please cease. How can Jacob stand? He's so small. And the Lord relented concerning this. This also shall not be, said the Lord God. So again, Amos intercedes. God relents from sending fire from heaven. Then comes another vision. 
This is what he showed me. Behold, the Lord was standing beside a wall built with a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. You know what a plumb line is? If you take a string and you get something heavy and you tie it to the bottom, and you just hold that string so that it dangles. Gravity will make that string eventually become perfectly vertical. And you would hold that string up against a wall as you're constructing. And if, it's, if the string is touching at the top and it's out two feet at the bottom, that means your wall is leaning out. And if it's the other way, your wall is leaning in. It was a way to measure to get things straight. And the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a plumb line. The Lord said, behold, I'm setting a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will never again pass by them. The high places of Isaac shall be made desolate and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with a sword. It seems here that the plumb line is God's word. And they are leaning so far away. They are so far out of true that they're going to collapse. If Israel is a wall, it's a wall that's going to fall over. And you'll notice this time, There's no intercession, there is no relenting, there is no stopping of the judgment to come. God lays out the straight line of his law and they are so out of whack that the only solution is demolition, not renovation. Three visions of judgment, but only one comes to completion. Why? Because God heard the prayers of his prophet to hold off, to remember how weak, how small Israel was. They're they're there claiming to be big and powerful. We're like all the other great nations and great cities of the world, but they're nothing without God. And so the prophet intercedes. How many times has God heard the prayers of his people for their lands and held back his mighty and omnipotent hand of judgment? How many times have the godly pleaded with the Lord to hold off his judgments and God in his wonderful kindness and generosity and mercy and patience relented from bringing judgment? How many times have your parents prayed you would repent and trust in the Lord Jesus and he lets you live another day so that you might? How many times will you hear of the looming day of God's judgment and act like the guy who's trying to plow the ocean? Folly, foolishness. You must be assured that your day of judgment is coming. It'll happen the moment you die or it'll happen soon before that, but it will happen. And repentance is the only way forward. There's no other options. You have to admit, Lord, I am small. How can I stand in the judgment? Please forgive me. God may be listening to the prayers of others to hold off your day of destruction, but two one time he holds it off, two times he holds it off, but the third time it comes... And the only thing holding you back from calling out to Jesus right now to ask him to save you from the destruction before you is your pride. If you're saying in your heart right now, I'll be fine, thank you very much. That is the surest proof 
that you've inhaled the deadly poison of pride. Just back in November, a family of five in Sarnia was awoken by one of those screaming alarms. Turned out to be their carbon monoxide detector. They got out of the house kind of groggy and foggy. The fire department came and said the levels, carbon monoxide levels were through the roof. That alarm saved their lives. Friend, I'm trying to be the pride detector alarm in your life this morning. Pride may help you get rich. Pride may make you feel like you're somebody, but in the end, it'll poison your soul and it'll lead you to hell. James 4.6, God opposes the proud. Been feeling a lot of opposition in what you've been trying to do lately? God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Pick your path. Do you want grace from God? Or do you prefer opposition from God? Let's pray together. Father, we pray that we would hear the words of Amos today and let them do their good work in our own hearts and minds and souls. There's much here to contemplate. Pray that as we do, we would do so honestly and forthrightly with you. Give us grace, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen.